0: Joseph.
1: Hello, Doctor Wyatt. How are you this evening?
2: I'm well, Tim. How are you?
1: Okay, I'm doing very well myself. I'm so glad we got a chance to interview you here. I, you have been a practicing forensic psychologist for how long?
2: Since the early 1980s.
1: So a little while now, huh?
2: Yep, quite a while. I'm actually retired. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, and my last case wrapped up about a year ago. Uh-huh. So, um, you know, I'm not taking any more new cases, uh-huh. but uh, it has been a, a very, very interesting part of my career. Of course, mainly, I was a full-time faculty member at Marshall University in West Virginia,
0: uh-huh.
2: and I had worked 10 or 11 years full-time in various clinical settings uh-huh. as well. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, I started doing this consulting and with attorneys, and so that really was a, a very nice thing. So I've enjoyed it, and uh, decided it was time to hang it up.
1: Uh, you were in- involved in forensic psychology beco- before it became so cool, huh?
2: Well, maybe so. Uh, you know, they have a lot of these television programs now, mm-hmm. and they deal with uh, the psychological things that go on and profilers who try to find the, uh, the uh, culprits and all that. However, I can tell you that there are almost no jobs for
0: mm-hmm.
2: full-time profilers in America. There might be 20
0: mm-hmm. such
2: people working for either the FBI or the CIA or big city police department. Mm-hmm. So that's what, you know, the kids want that. They want to be a profiler because they saw it on television. But there are many other things that forensic psychologists do and what they do mostly
0: is uh,
1: other kinds of things. Uh, What about, and I I hear about this just every once in a while, what about uh, a forensic uh, psychologist working as a uh, consultant for jury selection? Do you ever hear about that? Were you ever involved in anything like that?
2: I I was asked to do that a couple of times. It's not a high demand mm-hmm. thing. I think most of lawyers, most lawyers really have a pretty good feel for that. There probably are some huge cases where that matters more than others. They might want to get a look at the psychological uh, ideas about the uh, juries. But, you know, most of it's more, actually, somewhat more mundane, mm-hmm. and uh, probably, oh, I had about close to 10 years in the field, and I started getting calls from attorneys asking me to consult with them. But it was typically on something like determining um, competence and responsibility for people who were accused of crimes. Now, for listeners who don't know what that is, uh, typically, a, a company would call me and they would say they had a client who had committed a crime. There was no question about it. But the attorney felt that this particular defendant was uh, mentally ill, or perhaps suffering from intellectual deficiency or something of that nature. And so they were going to answer the two questions. Number one is the person competent to stand trial. And two is uh, was the person at the time he did this crime... Criminally responsible. Mm-hmm. Now, what these mean? Competence, of course, means uh, whether a person understands the charges against him and is is uh, cognizant enough to aid his attorney in his defense. Whether he understands the role of the judge, the the lawyer, the uh, the uh, prosecutor, and so on, sort of other questions. And if he is competent, we could put him on trial. But in the United States, if somebody is incompetent, is just so psychotic or of such a, an incredibly low intellectual level that they can't even uh, meaningfully uh, participate in the trial, with the attorney, and we don't put them on trial. We don't let them go either. We typically send them to a secure forensic facility. So that's the first thing that's frequently asked. The second is, at the time of the crime... Was he responsible for his actions, or did he suffer from a mental illness, or uh, some mental deficiency or the like that would have enabled, uh, that would have prevented him
0: from conforming his actions
1: to the requirements of the law? And and that does happen sometimes. And that's covered, uh, yeah, in in some of the cases in your book, which is the breaking point, killing and other true cases of murder and malice a west virginia forensic psychology psychologist remembers it's by w joseph wyatt and and this this book uh, got published uh let's see a couple years ago 2015 2015 okay mm-hmm. and the, the title case the breaking point killing what can you tell us about that particular case
2: this is a real interesting case, and by the way, Tim, I have worked on about 900 cases in my career. Not
1: 900.
2: And I would guess that about 300 of them were what I would call pretty interesting mm-hmm. murder, other kinds of crimes. So I selected 11 of those cases, and one case to a chapter to that is book breaking point killing. Plus a couple of general chapters about the field. In this particular case, it caused me to name the book Breaking Point Killing. This was a very rural area of West Virginia, a largely rural state anyway, and a man named Earl McCoy, who was a small man who weighed 135 pounds, had been bullied for years by a much bigger man named Emmett Brooks, who uh, made about 185. And in the end, Earl McCoy killed Emmett Brooks Mm -hmm. as a result of this bullying. Now, the the bullying over the years included an occasion where Mr. Brooks had shot Earl McCoy and almost killed him. Mm -hmm. And, of course, he was convicted of that. Um, But it didn't stop there. And And nobody... Tell me what was the dispute between these two men? Why did this happen? But Earl McCoy was trying to get away from Emmett Brooks in his truck, and Brooks took a rifle and fired it through the tailgate and the seat back, hitting Earl McCoy three times as he fled. And um, Earl McCoy had an extensive recuperation and so on. But after that, and uh, after Emmett Brooks was uh, on the loose again, Brooks uh, continued to harass Earl by, I don't, he told a dozen people in rural county that he intended to kill Earl McCoy, knowing that would get back to Earl. He harassed uh, Earl's wife at a convenience store, running up down the aisles, cursing at her. He once ran into Earl's brother Luther, who looked just like Earl, on a country road and. Luther was walking down the road and Brooks chased him into the brush, and Luther uh, was screaming, I'm going to kill you Earl. you, Earl. Luther finally had to run up over a mountain to get away. <laughs> Brooks would sit in his car at midnight outside Earl McCoy's uh, home and just sit out there like, as if to say, I'm watching you, Earl. Well, what happened was, first, Earl became a classic PTSD person, which I examined Earl and testified to that in court. He became an alcoholic because the only way he'd get to sleep at night was by drinking a six pack, a twelve pack, and he was drinking in the daytime. He wouldn't leave the house unless he thought it was safe, whatever that means. So when I examined Earl, you know, I asked him all these questions and he was quite forthcoming about all this. He didn't try to cover it up and I I did a good interview, I interviewed Earl's wife. He said, he's not the same man I married. <laughs> and if you numerous documents, police reports, medical reports, you know it. And I came to the conclusion that Earl was indeed a classic post-traumatic stress-disordered individual. So I testified about that in court, and um, with some intervening things that happened, a pretty man today. Now, one of the things that's important from a behavior analytic perspective, mm-hmm. it's very really tempting to say that
0: because of all these things that happened, Paul McCoy caught this disorder, or acquired
2: it, post-traumatic stress disorder, and then post-traumatic stress disorder was inside him working its way with him and causing him to do all the things he did, including, ultimately, shooting animals. I uh, I departed from that, keeping with my behavior analytic thinking, and I said, "Well, here's what happened: there were all of these things, this bullying, and parallel to it, Bill McCoy was becoming more nervous, hypervigilant, and so on, all the things we associated with post traumatic stress disorder. And so, all of this bullying." caused two things to happen. It caused the anxiety and the sleeplessness and the nervousness and, and hypervigilance and all those things we call post-traumatic stress disorder. And it also caused him to be going down the road one day, see him a Brooks standing in the road, six feet away from Brooks's car, where two loaded shotguns were in the seat. And when Brooks stepped toward that vehicle, Earl McCoy time. Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of a difference in thinking here. It's not links in a chain in the sense of bullying led to PTSD, which led to a shooting. Rather, a bunch of things happened. Bullying and uh, it caused both all these anxiety symptoms and
0: all
1: and that earlier description you had, uh, Dr. Wyatt about PTSD being being inside Mr. McCoy and that caused him mean, that that's what is commonly referred to as as a like a medical model, right? Of a, Yes,
2: a medical or biological model.
1: Right. Well, uh and like what we try to do here at criminal behaviorology, we the behavior analytic model is much more a component Driven process, and we're looking for what are the contingencies in the environment that may have led to the behavior.
0: That's correct.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, I, think, I don't
2: say I don't say that nothing changed inside of Earl McCoy. Mm-hmm. I think there are physiological changes anytime we almost anytime we do anything. If you learn to read something about your brain changes. If you learn to dance or ride a bicycle, something changes.
1: Right. Of course.
2: But just because you are bullied and something changes inside your central nervous system does not mean those changes then take on a life of their own and cause you to do things. And that's where I base my thinking. In a case like this home. I mean,
1: do you have any speculation about why Emmett Brooks acted the way he did?
2: Well, we don't know what triggered this first incident, which was the time that Brooks shot Earl McCoy through the tailgate of the truck and so on. Nobody I could ever figure it out, and his lawyers couldn't figure it out. Yeah. But um, I think the size discrepancy between the two men, mm-hmm. the fact that Brooks was just bigger and stronger was, was one reason uh, that it could happen, that Earl was unassertive, meek, mm-hmm. Uh, he was sort of the Barney fife type character for those who watch the Andy Griffith show. Right. And, um, maybe a little nervous to begin with. Another factor, I think, is that it was sort of perversely enjoyable, oh, I'm sorry, perversely enjoyable, mm-hmm. I think, to Emma Brooks to know that he could lord it over this weaker guy mm-hmm. uh, somewhat the way in bully might. But beyond that, there was something in Brooks's family that nobody, I mean, this was well-known in this rural county that this was going on, no secret. Nobody, as far as I know, in Brooks's family took him aside and said, mm-hmm. You're doing wrong here. You need to stop it. Mm-hmm. You know, something bad could happen. So there was an absence of, a, of control. And when I gave testimony, as I wrote in the book, I think I put this in the book, there was the deceased family sitting 10 feet away from me, and I said, Unfortunately, every time that Bill Brooks bullied Earl McCoy, Mr. Brooks was driving another nail into his own coffin. He didn't know it.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But that happened. He was turning Earl into a very dangerous man,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and he didn't perceive it. it's never been a very, very-
1: We hear a lot about bullying nowadays and I, I do think uh, it has a lot to do not just with the victim that's being bullied but of of the the people and the relationships inside the bully's life. And it may be a an attention-maintained thing. It may be a, a, an escape from family problems thing. Something like that is so that the people closest to the bully are somehow reinforcing or... I suppose, uh, encouraging, perhaps without even realizing it, the bullying behavior.
2: Maybe so. Maybe they were just chuckling about it and thought it was kind of a hoot. hmm Well, it, uh, it wasn't funny
1: anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the, the next one I read in there, and this is the actual title of it, he murdered his gay partner, uh, I'll let you, and in that one, well, I'll let I'll let you describe that for us. If you, he murdered his gay partner, could you describe that case for us, Doctor Wyatt?
0: Sure. This is a case of a, a
2: man named Jimmy Constantino in his fifties. And by the way, I'm using actual names and such here. Mm-hmm. Anything I tell you uh, in this interview is all part of the public domain. It comes from my testimony in court,
0: mm-hmm.
2: my written reports that I. Uh, Handed into the uh, courts or some of it, even newspaper publicity. Uh, Mr. Constantino was, by all accounts, a bright and successful guy in a, a rural county in southern West Virginia. He was a college graduate, had taught school for years and years, and on the side, he had developed a realty business that became quite successful enough so that as time went by, he quit teaching school, and this is after. 30 years, they said, and he was a realtor who, in one of his better years, had uh, sold half the properties that were sold in that county. So that tells you he knew what he was about. Uh, so, he, uh, he was a gay man, and uh, I think uh, based on my conversations with his lawyer and with his office manager at the realty business and his brother... Uh, everybody knew it in the county. And they didn't really care because he was a good citizen. He was the only one. Mr. Constantino was the only one that thought he was in the closet, so to speak. Now <laughs> so he had a long-term relationship with his partner. had lived together and learned a house uh, down there in that county for uh, 12 years or thereabouts. So he was a solid citizen, but it was a kind of a redneck county, for lack of a better term. And as a native West Virginian, maybe I get to say that. <laughs> uh, and, you know, he he was careful to to not come out of the closet. So anyway, as a smart businessman, you would ask yourself, how could this ever happen? But he uh, got a fax one day which told him That he had inherited $15 million from a long lost relative in Africa, and that he would have to pay some money to get the money released so he could have all this money. Now, not to be flippant about this, because it did involve a murder, ultimately, but several times in my life, I have actually inherited millions of dollars from a long lost relative in Africa, if you know what I mean. (laughs) It's just that it just reeks of scam that he took the date.
1: And and, and the I really have to, I have to ask about that because that fascinated me that someone would would be this successful in their life over such a long period of time dealing with properties and money, and then a uh, a fax just comes in and he he falls for it. Why, why do you think that that it happened like that? You
2: know, that's one of the mysteries of the case that I've never really figured that out. I uh, I did examine. Jimmy Constantino, of course, and submitted my report to the court and all that. But uh, I don't know. That is a puzzler. There was something about him that caused him, maybe it was a star in his eyes, some desire to, you know, really, really make it hugely successfully. I don't
1: know. That that was my, my sense in reading it. it you you ex- met him and examined him. I don't know, but my my sense is people that fall for these scams, it's a something-for-nothing deal, and it, it may have been reaching a point in his life when he thought, you know, after all this time, I should have really hit the big time. And right at that moment, a fax comes in. That's just kind of the picture in my head that comes across in this story.
2: It could- Maybe a little gap in his critical thinking skills. Uh, who knows? Uh, but that is a good question. I wish I, I, wish I knew. Um, I, I just think something so obviously a scam. Mm-hmm. It just, uh, it defies my
1: thinking. So, so after this. And, You know,
2: perhaps uh, he just didn't have a lot of experience with slick operators. Uh It wouldn't surprise me either, you know, Uh scam-type people. Uh I don't take it for granted because of the career I had, you Uh know, suspicious of everything. Right. But perhaps he wasn't.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. So
2: so to go on with what happened in the case, he took the bait. He paid thousands of dollars out over a period of (laughs) a year or so. And finally, he got suspicious and he said, look, if I don't have this money right away, I'm not giving you, you guys any more money. And then he got a check. He got two or three checks totaling nearly a quarter of a million dollars. Oh, saying, man. Uh, okay, we're able to fin- spend part of the money. Now, that reinforced all this.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And he just, uh, you know, he deposited the checks. Strangely enough, the checks were drawn on the account of a Jesuit school up in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. The scammers explained that this was because they had to work through uh, some U.S. conduit, and that school had always been helpful about doing this. Well, translation, the scammers had stolen a checkbook from this Jesuit school in New Jersey and just wrote checks on it and sent them to him. And when he deposited those checks, it didn't take long for the scammers to figure out where they had been deposited, and who did it, and the FBI looked into it, and they arrested Mr. Constantino. Now, he had a good lawyer, and in time, the lawyer convinced the authorities that Mr. Constantino was as much a victim as the school up in New Jersey, and they dropped the charges against him. Mm -hmm. Now, that all was pretty straightforward, but that's when things took a weird turn uh, the charges were dropped. Jimmy Constantino had the means to pay the money back that he you know, said he would do that, and they uh, started making good on that. But then he began getting very, very paranoid. Uh, he was uh, suspicious that the FBI was still watching him or that mobsters from New Jersey were going to come and kill him. And he started not going to work at the realty business. He scarcely left the house to go to the grocery store. He waited till the wee hours of the morning, kind of slinking along the, the uh, aisles at the grocery store so people wouldn't see him. And he got so bad with this that uh, when I talked to his office manager, she told me that he was just not showing up for work. And when he did, he was uh, grungy and canceled. Mumbling to himself. She had to, to uh, write notes for him when he was on the phone saying, say this to the customer wanting to buy a property. And uh, he even let his guilty license lapse because he didn't take his continuing education credits and so on. So he was really functioning very poorly. And around this time, his uh, partner said, I can't take this anymore. You have got to get some professional help, Jimmy." And so he did get some outpatient treatment first and then things did not improve. Then the partner made it better. Brett said, I'm going to leave. If you don't get some help. He got a little more help. Then came a fateful day where, and, and Jimmy was still not being honest with his counselors and psychiatrists, and all he got was medication, really, a little bit of counseling. And one day on a Friday, as I recall it, got up in the morning, ate some breakfast. His partner was uh, still asleep upstairs in the bedroom. Jimmy got a gun, went up there, mm. and shot his partner dead point blank. Mm. And then, the rest of that day and the next day, he wandered around the house with his partner's dead body, occasionally going up there, he told me, and shouting at, at the body to get out finally on the third day and a Sunday, I
1: believe, he called the authorities and He 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 was he he was there with the the dead with the deceased person for how long?
2: In the house for about forty
1: eight hours. Oh my goodness! So he did make a quick
2: trip to visit his mother. Uh huh. Okay. So the authorities, once he got in jail, he began uh, talking in a very paranoid fashion, saying that they the uh, correctional officers were plotting to steal his house, uh, that there were 500 people in the street outside the jail demanding his release, So, it's just ridiculous. And uh, with that, his lawyer got him transferred to a psychiatric hospital, and that's where I saw him. Mm-hmm. And by then, he was starting to come out of the fog a little bit, but I examined him. He certainly wasn't faking a mental illness. He was the real thing. Mm-hmm. He had become completely psychotic by the time he shot uh, his partner. Uh, he was um, indicted for a first-degree murder. One of the factors there, a few days before the shooting, he had um, called a local cemetery and ordered two blocks. So that right there suggests premeditation.
0: But mm-hmm.
2: so I think he had become even when he made that call, it was probably the first time.
0: Right. So
2: uh, I examined him, lended by the court, and I knew that there was no way he was going to walk free, because that almost never happens in these cases, as you know. And uh, he was, I think his lawyer and the judge could see that he was not the right person to be housed with hardcore inmates. Right. And so. The idea for my examination was to suggest a the judge, judge that he needed some kind of psychiatric facility mm-hmm. and not exposed, exposed to a general population. Mm-hmm. So I look back and I say to myself, what factors? You know, we don't want to make this mistake of saying, oh, he had all this scam problem. It caused him to have a disorder called paranoid schizophrenia. And that worked inside of him, and then it caused him to shoot his partner. That is not a good conceptualization. Mm-hmm. That's, again, the old biological model, or some might call it a you know, Freudian psychodynamic model. Right. And it's not not an accurate model, neither one is. Uh Rather, when I looked at this, I looked at, and I wrote this in my report, um, what are the factors? And as I described him in the book chapter on Jimmy Constantino, you know, first, smart guy, but maybe looking to make it a little bigger than he really should have, uh, yeah. for lack of a better term. Right. Second, he, his wife up to this point, he, I don't think he had been involved with a lot of car owners. Now, you'd think that... In the realty business, he would have met a few shady people. But, you know, small town where he was, probably five or 6,000 people. Maybe, maybe not. And second, or third, I think that being a gay man at that time, and this was all about 15 years or so,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and especially in a rural community where the acceptance of differences, including gay people, is not the best. Uh, he probably tended to be a little suspicious anyway,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and um, guarded himself against, you know, potential attacks. Let's say, right? Um, and I think he was—he probably was lacking something in critical thinking skills to have ever fallen for this ruse.
0: Of a $15 million inheritance. And from there, things really snowballed. Mm-hmm. So, those
1: are what I call causes. Uh huh. you schizophrenia, nice description, but not a cause. Right. Yeah, to just put a label on something, yeah, that doesn't really tell us the component parts of how a behavior occurs. It's really not. Uh... Well, that's
2: true. One of the things I've described uh, many times in the when was on the witness stand, something like this. Say, look, we have to be careful how we use our terms. Paranoid schizophrenia? Okay, that does describe him. But consider this, and I've said this kind of thing to juries and to judges, here. Okay, suppose he was taken to a doctor and um, his partner said, well, What's wrong with him, doctor? Answer, he has paranoid schizophrenia partner says, well, he's been doing all this this suspicious behavior, and not, he won't go out anywhere until it's, like, he thinks he's safe, like, 4 o'clock in the morning, and he's in a, he's accusing me of things, and
0: mm-hmm. accusing
2: his office manager of spying on him, and, you know, so, he would be doing that because, and the doctor says, because he has
1: schizophrenia.
2: Right. Well, then, Dr. How do he has paranoid schizophrenia? Well, because he does all these suspicious things. So yeah. there's a circularity there. Yeah. And you can see it quickly when it's explained like that. And that's
1: what you to Right. It, it seemed like psychology, It's the standard accepted psychology, is not getting very far uh, beyond just the descriptive or operational definition phase in understanding a problem. Well behavior analysis, yeah, behavior analysis is looking for function and contingencies that may result in a behavior. Yeah, I think
2: um, one of the things that appealed to me and, and uh, drew me into a behavior analytic perspective and looking at all things, um, and I should say, I'm not saying there aren't. Some biological causes of some disorders. Who would right. argue about Bound syndrome, for example? Right. Or a person that obviously has a brain tumor that uh, he was the picture of uh, decorum all his life and started behaving very strangely and there's a big tumor they discovered. I mean, that happened. Right. And I'm saying those are the, that's a the small percentage of the time. And yet we know, and every day in the town you live in, I live in, some people are going to the doctor and they've been kind of depressed, and they say, "Doctor, I, you know, I'm not sleeping well, and I don't have any appetite. I'm having crying spells. I don't even want to get out of bed." And the doctor says, "Oh well, you've got depression. <laughs> well, how do you know I have depression? Mm-hmm. Well, because you don't have any appetite. You don't sleep." And <laughs>
1: segment of a of their book you give a really a good assessment, a really strong assessment of modern mental health care when you talk about the this prescribing of medications. Why do you think the prescribing of medications has become such a really the dominant treatment method in psychiatric care?
2: There are two big factors and they have worked uh, hand in glove together to bring us to the point where so many Psychiatric residents these days don't even get training in how to, how to become a therapist.
0: Mm-hmm. Just
2: medication management. Mm-hmm. The two big factors are these. First, going back to the 1960s, really, the profession of psychiatry was losing the Um mm-hmm. uh, because young doctors were just avoiding Psychiatry as a profession for reasons that were understandable. Uh, in fact, the number of new doctors choosing psychiatry through the 1960s dropped by 50%, uh-huh. about 1 in 10 to 1 in 20. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they were seeing, I think, psychiatry is mired in the old psychoanalytic mumbo jumbo. Right. <laughs> pardon me. Uh,
1: Voodoo. And. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and there were phenomena in the
2: 1960s that kind of brought all of the mental health professions down, nude encounter groups and primal screen <laughs> therapy and all kinds of kooky stuff. And,
1: uh, Perhaps we should do a show uh, on nude encounter groups one time. I, I just, yeah, uh, uh, that's made for the radio. Right? Yeah, that's an aside, but yeah, okay.
2: But, so young doctors were not choosing psychiatry, and also around that time, other professions which they looked on as uh, psychiatrists the intruders, I think clinical psychology, counseling, psychiatric social work, work, and so on, were starting to make headway to getting more patients. So organized psychiatry, I mean by that, the American Psychiatric Association, they decided to address this crisis in their field They had conferences and so on. And the way, uh, this was in the 1970s for you them, know, and the way they decided to bring uh, breathe new life back into psychiatry was to become more biological. Uh-huh. To wrap themselves tightly in the cloak of medical respectability, and this brought about a new era. And so, by about 1980, a new version of the ESM, the Diagnostic Manual of the published by the American Psychiatric Association was uh, a revision of it, and suddenly, by magic, it was it must the that most all of these disorders, depression, anxiety, childhood behavior problems, you know, that these were caused in our biology. Mm-hmm. A chemical imbalance, a genetic defect, or the like, and then the treatment for them would be medications. Right. Now, there was little or no, excuse me, little or no, research to support this giant shift in worldview by the professional psychiatry. And there still was very little research for it. But that's what they did to try to, as I say, breathe life back into the profession. And to some extent that worked. Now, parallel to that came the pharmaceutical industry. Mm -hmm. This was the other big factor that played a role. And always looking for a new market niche, The pharmaceutical industry jumped right in and of course working hand in glove and I mean in partnership with the American Psychiatric Association, there came a drug for whatever problem a person had psychiatrically and that gave rise to the era of uh, more and more antidepressants, anti-anxiety drugs, anti psychotic drugs and the like, and I would never say that these never helped anybody at all, just that it quickly became to the point of uh, overkill. So organized psychiatry, trying to work its way back to greater esteem in patients and such, and the pharmaceutical industry, these two powerful forces came together, and they're still at work today, and that is why, uh, you know, so many of the times people actually kind of self diagnose they're wrong mostly but they'll go to the doctor and say doctor i've been you know been wrong, been really low and i'm pretty sure I'm, i have clinical depression that's a sort of throwaway term which doesn't have any real meaning right except i have enough depression i think i should have treatment and so uh Doctors are too many, of them, general practitioners, practitioners with little or no training in psychiatry, and they pass out the drugs.
0: So it's a it's a problem, and uh, it, I think it hurts people every
2: day. When uh, you know as well as I do, who have gone to their family doctor and described something about a you know, nervous, and the doctor was all too willing to prescribe a pill. And the problem with that is it didn't teach them how to how to deal better with whatever was going on, and so many times it's not anything in their biology at all, even though the doctor may say and the television commercials say you have a chemical imbalance and serotonin you know, there's a, an imbalance of serotonin and this drug will help it rebalance and then you'll feel better. Right. And the um, evidence, the research
1: evidence to support that is virtually non And plus, even if if something does have a biological component to it, that doesn't mean that learned behavior and conditioning couldn't be a treatment for it. Because, uh, uh, you know, if you have a physical injury, you know, you may go to a physical therapist to do activities to strengthen your muscles and and uh, your musculoskeletal system, and you're doing an activity to improve yourself even though the injury was physical. You see what I'm saying?
2: Of course. In fact, uh, for example, there's a biological component to a muscle tension headache. Right. And we've all had one or two of those, and if we live long enough, but that doesn't mean you need a pill. Right. You might need relaxation training. Right. So there are some instances, I
0: think, for example... Someone who's undergone terrible trauma and just can't sleep. Mm-hmm. Well, for goodness' say maybe an anti-anxiety drug just to help
2: them get some sleep for a week or ten days. Fine, but to go on longer than that, first of all, they're becoming dependent on it if they take it every day for ten days, uh, a week. And then the problem is, uh, you know, trying to get get off it. Not always easy, right? Uh, because they start to go through withdrawal
0: signs, symptoms, and, you know, get nervous and fidgety, and then uh-huh. they say, well, that just proves I'm still
2: nervous.
1: Uh, yeah. It just snubbles. Right. Yeah. That gives us a, a lot to think about because uh, there's a whole lot of, I've seen a whole lot of patients and people I've known personally that are taking a whole lot of pills, and I I think about where this is headed, Um with uh, modern psychiatric care, so that's a very interesting analysis, Doctor White. I get asked a lot by people uh, about the forensic psychology field, and you are the real thing. You're the you're a real forensic psychologist. What do you think people need to know about the field, based on your years of experience? Well,
2: the first thing is I'll just reiterate something: if it's that you want to be a profiler. Never be able to do more things than that because you probably cannot make a career out of that. Mm-hmm. But it is a good career.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It's been a good area for me. Some of the things that people need to know uh, I think they need a doctoral degree in clinical psychology.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, people trained in other areas of psych where they're not in a clinical field trained to do treatment can do some forensic work. I had a colleague who did some of that, but his area of expertise was memory, and he testified sometimes about the problems with uh, memory. Mm -hmm. But to do the kind of things I'm talking about, examine people and then testify about them in court, to do that, uh, people need a degree in, uh, preferably a doctoral degree in clinical psychology, although you can do this with a master's in clinical Mm -hmm. science. Then they need to do training, master or doctoral, they need to pair up with a faculty member who does a lot of this and learn from them by working on cases together. So that's a start, but then they need to know more than that. For example, they need to know about the courts and the processes and what is involved in court. And it's not it's not a walk in the park sometimes. As you know, I think you've done testimony yourself many times, but uh, maybe kind of in a slightly different focus than mine. But, um, you know, the difference between an expert witness and a fact witness is that an expert can give opinions. A fact witness can tell what they saw or heard, and that's about it. But somebody like myself, I can give an opinion and say, "I, I think that this person suffered from whatever disorder or um, the like way to this crime. Beyond that, once you give an opinion, you have to know about the difference between direct and cross-examination. Right. And this is why many psychologists only do it once, I think. You get a direct examination from the attorney who hired you, and... That's peaches and cream, they love you, you're saying what helps their side of the case. But then you're gonna be cross-examined by a smart person who wants nothing more than to make out like you have no clue what you're talking about.
0: Right.
2: And in my career, I have been subjected to cross-examination where everything from my training and experience, my methods, to my genetic structure was questioned by right. on cross-examination, I right. think. And uh, part of the game there is having a uh, quick answer when you are asked questions that are more or less out of line. And for me,
0: after I had been in
2: for a while, I recognized that the more kind of extraneous questions I thought, the better I felt in a way because that told me that the cross-examining lawyer would rather focus on anything but what I had actually found out and testified on direct examination.
1: bit of distraction there, huh?
2: Exactly. And so, for example, I got questions like, uh, Dr. Wyatt, how much are you being paid for your testimony today? Answer, well, I'm not paid anything for my testimony, but I am paid for my time because this (laughs) kind of thing takes a lot of time. And then I would tell how much I was being paid. End of story. And I don't think that ever hurt me. Mm-hmm. Um, or um, you know some other kind of question like uh, you know, how many times have you testified for the defense if I'm being cross-examined by a prosecutor how many times have you been, uh, have you testified for the defense answer well I don't think of myself as testifying for either side I'm just I did my examination here are the results Right. and so, you know, you have a, after a while, you get a kind of a stock answer for all those. Oh, one of my favorites, now this is from
0: somebody trying
2: to discredit me, Dr. Wyatt, what, you're not a psychiatrist, are you? <laughs> and of course, in my thought bubble, it's usually something like, no, thank God. But,
1: <laughs> uh, thank God I'm not a psychiatrist. But, but, yeah,
2: but I would say, no, I'm a psychologist.
1: Uh-huh.
2: Well, what's the difference, Dr. Wyatt? And what they want is that I'm not a medical doctor. Right. And my answer, what's the difference? Do you mean in our training or our experience? And, you know, I, I never had that question when I responded that way. But what I got sort of a curious look, a puzzled look on the face of the cross examiner. And sometimes they would say, well, what's the difference in both of those? Okay. Answer. Uh, well, a uh, psychologist like myself, all of my training is in behavioral sciences and mental health field. All of it. Four years of training and a one-year internship and so on. For a psychiatrist, four years of medical school, but usually that's two classes in the mental health field and then six weeks of what you might call on-the-job training.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And then have uh, residency of five years, which is... Um, on-the-job training, the first two years of which involved very little in the mental health field, but a little bit and in the last three years, a little more. So, that's the difference. You just take it or leave it. Mm-hmm. What you think? Well, what's the difference in practice? Well, these days, psychiatrists spend almost all their time, at least my psychiatrist names, uh, doing med reviews, 15 minutes with a the patient then move to the next one. Whereas in psychology, we do an hour of sometimes a little less, a little more so, the actual therapy, finding out what are the causes of a person's problems. And so. so, you know, you have to, for anyone thinking of going in the field, you have to be ready for the cross-examination.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, the, you just, you get used to it after a while and then go on. Um, one of the things I caution anybody is you cannot be everything to all people. Right. But you know your areas of expertise and limit yourself to those. For me, I've just mentioned two, and they're very common, probably the most common request, assessing competence to stand trial and responsibility for, for the crime, criminal responsibility or lack of it. Another area that I developed, because I began getting a lot of uh, calls from attorneys, is assessment of child sexual abuse. Right. You now I had a lot of training in child psychology and the like, and I had to make myself an expert. In the area of assessing child sexual abuse, what I found out was there are a lot of people out there who really don't know what they're doing, and they can lead a child, This, particularly at a young child age, another, they can ask a lot of leading questions and get a false report. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got a lot of cases like that. So right. that was uh, one of the other types of cases that I would
1: that's kind of related to the implanting of memories phenomenon.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Well, Dr. Wyatt, you have uh really told us a lot here. It's a very a lot of people are interested in the field. I always got the impression forensic psychologists as a specialty were uh kind of the best of the best to be able to answer such detailed questions. In an adversarial environment, and deal with you know do things like competency and insanity. Do do you think uh, people that practice forensically they have to really know their stuff?
2: Probably do, because the worst thing in the world is to get on the witness stand and something happens and you just caught for an answer. Right. And uh, you just have to know what you're doing. Put it out there. Uh-huh. And then not worry too much about what the jury thinks. It's just, there it is, you know. I, uh-huh. I, I admit it's hard not to kind of have a little spilling of the risk. You want your findings to be accepted and so on and so forth. But they can't always be, and um, you just have to have to accept that. And then, you know, when you get a, a lawyer who's trying to be arrogant and part of you or bring you down, you can't you can't break your composure and, uh, um, I think juries in general are pretty smart and they will come to the right decision most of the time. And you you have to say there it is, you know, they did what they did. And, you know, it's not always the right decision. And sometimes they can be misled pretty badly and I put it some cases in their book about that.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, where One where a West Virginia state police serologist just went to court and lied his head off yeah. about his findings, uh, his blood and serology findings, and sent many people to prison for oh. years and years, and that became a national case. It was all like right. 60 minutes and all those things, and, and I knew that guy. right, And, Why he did that? I don't
1: know. Right. Put some
2: speculation about
1: that in that chapter. Yeah. Yeah. Forensic psychologists have to be especially ethical as well.
2: You do, because you'll, you'll sometimes have a lawyer who wants to get you to do things.
1: If you had it to do all over again, would you would you do your career the same way?
2: I would. I always enjoyed being in psychology. And I I think I just what makes people do the things they do. For me,
0: right.
2: I, I always was interested in the I got into the clinical side, and, and um, actually I had a master's degree in experimental side, but I decided to change over to clinical. hmm and, and I just really enjoyed. Doing that, um, like anything, it has its high and low points. It's really interesting things and boring parts, but you know, to me, it's a good career, and I, uh, I think that comes through in the book that I wrote about it. So there you
1: go. I, it certainly does. It is. It is the, the breaking point killing. And other true cases of murder and malice, of West Virginia forensic psychologist remembers W. Joseph Wyatt. You also you have a book called The Millennium Man. I'll have to check that one out. I've never read that book.
2: That is a novel, mm-hmm. and um, you know I, I'm always in search of a, a genre. I can't find one. <laughs> I have a novel which is part science fiction, but uh-huh. it is to teach science fact called The Millennium Man. And then I had an academic book about the Harvard Business b used to be f Skinner. Mm-hmm. And then I wrote a book about the Boy Scouts, all things, which I was all years ago. And mm.
1: uh, then I wrote yeah, a
2: book recently about the Iraq War. Okay. It came out. Uh, it came out about a year, not quite a year ago. My son was in the Marine Corps and fought it. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And so I have a book about uh, the Iraq War. So, yeah.
1: I'm gonna to have to check well, out your your Amazon page. I didn't know you did this you'd written so many books. Out there. Okay. <laughs>
0: automatic.com or anchor.fm for this podcast, as well as our Facebook page and our blogger page.